This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. From the Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, progressive news without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener, and today, big surprise, we'll be talking about politics in America. On Tuesday, in the North Carolina primary, that state's draconian new voter ID law took effect for the first time. Ari Berman will review the situation. He wrote the book, Give Us the Ballot. And we'll also speak with the great Tom Frank, author of What's the Matter with Kansas. He's got a new book out called Listen Liberal. He argues that it's the Democrats who have led us into the abyss of inequality. First up today, political analysis from John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for the nation, and he has a new book out, People Get Ready, the Fight Against a Jobless Economy in a Citizenless Democracy. John Nichols, welcome and congratulations on the new book. Thanks, John, and it's great to be with you. Well, let's start with Hillary and Bernie. Hillary, of course, beat Bernie in Ohio on Tuesday. She beat him big time, 57 to 43 in a state he was hoping to win. She also beat him in North Carolina and Florida by and by a much smaller margin in Illinois. And in Missouri, it was basically a tie. The New York Times says the Bernie campaign is now finished. And the task now is that, quote, Hillary Clinton needs to win over Bernie Sanders supporters, close quote, getting ready for November. Do you think that's where we are at this point? Well, I suppose that's where we are if you're not too excited about democracy. But I, I kind of like democracy. I like letting people have a say. And so when you set up a process that is supposed to go through 50 states that has a schedule and that then also brings in uh, our various commonwealths and districts and all these places that vote, even Democrats abroad voting, I believe that at the very least, you ought not declare the process done until somebody has won a sufficient number of delegates so that they can be nominated. You're, you're, I like very, even you're very old fashioned. I know. <laughs> and then, you know, ideally, I also believe that it should be a sufficient number of pledged delegates, not superdelegates, so that, you know, really the. The point at which you might suggest finishing a process is the point at which um, the people have weighed in, that the members of the party and those who can vote in primaries and caucuses have had their say. I think that's healthy for a political party. I think that suggests that the process is real and that participating, getting engaged matters. And so I think political parties benefit by that. I also believe, and I believe quite strongly, that um, the when you start to tell people that something is over before they think it's over, you harm the second part of that equation. second part of that equation says, well, Hillary's going to have to, Hillary Clinton is going to have to start to attract Bernie Sanders supporters. 
Well, you know, I actually think an ongoing process where you have continual debates, continual dialogue, is a good thing to do. Because you know what, what happens if we don't see this process through, if we don't you know, continue to invite people to engage in the Democratic primaries and caucuses and say, you know, let's, let's see what all happens. What is our, what is our media going to do? Is it going to you know, pay a lot of attention to the Democrats as they plan their convention and you know, organize the parties in Philadelphia for July? Or is it going to pay attention entirely, wall-to-wall, top-to-bottom, to you know, the, the wrestling within the Republican Party around Donald Trump? I would suggest the latter. And what we have learned uh, from some of the turnout models, but also from a lot of the other things that are going on right now, is that this overcoverage of Trump, this incredible overcoverage of Trump, creates a reality not just for the Republican Party, but for the Democratic Party and the overall process. And so I think maintaining the Democratic fight for a little longer um, is a counterbalance to that, and, and at least to some extent a very healthy counterbalance to it. Do you think uh, Bernie has any realistic uh, prospects of making significant gains in the, in the coming weeks and months? Oh, he will make gains. Yeah, there, there's no doubt of that. Um, one thing to, to be conscious of is that the early stages of this process tended to be a lot of states that were, for a variety of reasons, favorable to Hillary Clinton. She didn't win them all. Sanders won a number of states. But, I mean, it was the early part of the uh, calendar was friendly to Clinton. The calendar now moves to a number of states that most political analysts, and I can say from my own experience of traveling to a lot of these places, is more favorable to Sanders. Uh, This coming weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, caucuses and primaries in Arizona, Utah, Alaska, Hawaii, Washington State. Uh, I've been to a number of those states, and I can tell you that the Sanders people are incredibly well organized on the ground. Uh, and they, they intend to fight for those states, and I think probably will do pretty well. I also will note that in a couple of weeks it comes to Wisconsin, a traditional uh, pivot state in, in presidential politics, one where the primaries have not always but historically mattered a good deal. Polling in Wisconsin right now shows Bernie Sanders narrowly ahead. And I think that Sanders is very likely to have a number of additional wins. Does that mean he's going to be the nominee? I'm not telling you that. Does it mean uh, that, you know, he's going to win everything? No, I'm not telling you that. But what I would suggest to you is that those in our media elites and those in our political elites who say things are over do not necessarily speak for the great mass of Democrats at the grassroots. I'm, I think there are quite a few people, um, in fact, I, I'm certain that there are quite a few people who don't believe it's over and are going to fight on and look for some major wins. Why do you think Bernie didn't do better in Ohio? It seemed to be his kind of state, especially after his, uh, uh, let's call it, magnificent uh, victory in, in Michigan. Uh, and are there any lessons from Ohio for, for Bernie in the coming weeks and months? Well, there's, tr- there's lessons for our media and for our political pundits, and also some as regards, you know, uh, some other areas we could look at. First off, for our media and our political pundits, nobody who's actually spent much time in Michigan and Ohio would tell you they're the same. They're very, very different states. Northern Ohio is heavily industrialized and does compare with, you know, some parts of Michigan. Southern Ohio, very, very different place. Also, Ohio has had... Uh, often a very different politics. Just to give you an example, 
Michigan is rarely, at the end of the day, a battleground state. It is usually pretty early on in the presidential process, most years, that Michigan seems to be locked up. Yeah. And it's generally locked up for the Democrats. Uh, Michigan has two Democratic senators. Uh, Michigan has you know, a lot. It's just a different state. Ohio um, is almost always a battleground. Uh, it has one Democrat, one Republican. It has real divisions and real competition in areas that, that are just, you know, it's different than Michigan. And so that's lesson number one. The assumption that Ohio would do the same thing Michigan did was a wrong assumption to start with. Number two, um, I, I think the person who learned the best lesson from Michigan was Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton, who is an evolutionary or evolving candidate who does listen to things, and, and her, certainly her campaign pays attention, especially when they lose, um, has brought in a lot of language about trade policy, uh, about economic justice, about economic fairness. If you listen to her speeches, you know, Bernie Sanders jokes that and he did recently at some rally that when he listens to her speeches, he feels like he maybe should have copyrighted his speeches. One last question about the uh, Bernie uh, campaign. Last week, the um, NBC Wall Street Journal poll found that a third of Bernie's supporters said they would not vote for Hillary Clinton in November if she was the Democratic nominee. Uh, and nearly 60,000 people have signed the Bernie or Bust Pledge, which is a pledge to write in Bernie or vote for the Green Party in November if he does not get the nomination. Uh, what do you think about the Bernie or Bust Pledge? I think it's fine for people to take the stand they want to take. And, and um, although I would just counsel that uh, what one says in March or April of an election year may be very different than what th someone thinks or feels that they're in a battleground state in November. And uh, if you'll recall, back in 2008, many supporters of Hillary Clinton were furious at Barack Obama and his supporters. There was a, a great deal of anger and tension. And you had people who, you know, a few, who suggested that, you know, they, they're going to have a very hard time reconciling with the guy that beat them. Uh, by the time they got to the Democratic Convention and Hillary Clinton was on the floor announcing the votes for Barack Obama, and a host of other uh, developments took place. And then, of course, you know, Bush and Cheney crashed the global economy with their horrible policies. Um, suddenly, a great deal of unity broke out. Uh, I would suggest to you that, that the notion that there's a, a huge number of people that are going to write in Bernie or vote for a third party, uh, which, by the way, I think third parties are great, and I'm always encouraging, I just don't think that's very likely this year for a reason that we haven't discussed yet, although I suspect we're about to pivot to it. <laughs> yes. And that is, if you're running against Donald Trump, yeah. and many of the issues that Trump has brought into play, especially, you know, look, you have potential that the Republican nominee is a guy who, when asked about retweeting a quote from Benito Mussolini, said, hey, it's a good quote. <laughs> um, my sense is that, that, you know, hooping together all the disparate elements of the Democratic Party and of progressive coalitions might be a little easier than some people think at this point. Well, we've been trying really hard not to give too much attention to Donald Trump in this segment, but you're right. Now we have to talk about Trump. Uh, 
You know, there isn't a whole lot new to say about Donald Trump. The question this week for the Republican establishment is the same question there's always been. Who is the anti-Trump? You know, Ted Cruz says he's the anti-Trump. Now that Kasich has won his own state of Ohio, he says the anti-Trump, or he can become the anti-Trump at the convention in Cleveland in in July. Uh, Is it really possible that the Republicans will not have Donald Trump as their candidate? Well, I I think you have to have the right anti-Trump. My view is the anti-Trump should be a rock and roll historian from Los Angeles, perhaps. (laughs) Uh, but if you're not going to jump in, John, then my, my sense is that it gets pretty hard. You realize that, you know, John Kasich did, in fact, win uh, his home state of Ohio. Historically, in politics, winning your home state wasn't the end game. It was the starting place yeah. in your campaign, right? Yeah. So at this point, the guy who seems to be emerging as the the uh, favored alternative, at least of some parts of the establishment, because they know Ted Cruz is, you know, perhaps even more unelectable ultimately than Donald Trump. You know, John Kasich. I mean, this guy who's only won his home state. There, there are twenty some, you know, dozen primary. Or, I'm sorry, I've got a, I, my number may be off, but roughly twenty primaries in so far, and and he's only won his home state. That's not very impressive, my friend. <laughs> no, it's not. And the fact is, the most viable alternative is Ted Cruz. It's because Ted Cruz is very ideological, uh, a real purist, and he's got a lot of backers, you know, who are going to, you know, show up for caucuses and events for him. But he's not, Ted Cruz is clearly not viable enough to beat Donald Trump. And so then now you have this fantasy that somehow the backers of Rubio and Cruz and, you know, John Wiener are all going to come together on the floor of the Republican National Convention. They'll get just enough votes to stop Trump, and then they'll, then they'll suddenly all coalesce and pick an alternative. And on this, I will quote Donald Trump, because I think he's right about this. <laughs> that assumption rests on the notion that nobody who's backing, you know, like Ted Cruz or some of these other candidates, that none of them have Donald Trump as their second choice. That's, a fa- that's absurd. The truth of the matter is there's quite a bit of evidence from just the, the, the polling data it tells us that for many people, their, their second choice is Trump. And, and so I think stopping him at this point becomes more and more difficult. So I do believe we're going to move, in my view, to the next stage of this. And the next stage is a discussion about whether there will be an independent, conservative, sort of mainstream conservative challenge to Trump. And there are a lot of people who are, especially in the conservative intelligentsia, They're quite excited about this. They're talking about it a great deal. One last thing. Another one of our principles is we don't spend much time on the polls, but there is a pretty interesting result from that NBC Wall Street Journal poll uh, on the election matchup in November. Uh, The poll this week shows Hillary beating Trump in November by 13 points. Also shows Bernie beating Trump by 18 points. What do you make of those results? I've seen those numbers all over the country, and it's very, very interesting. In my native state of Wisconsin, there's polling that shows that uh, Hillary Clinton beats uh, Donald Trump by 10 points, or, you know, roughly 10, and Bernie Sanders beats 20 points. Whoever the Democratic nominee is, that nominee is going to be hit with an immense amount of negatives, not merely in negative ads, but also Donald Trump's skillful manipulation of major media to communicate his attack messages on those he's running against. 
if you understand that, I think we have to be careful about any of these, you know, long way out polls. The better way to think about it, and I keep telling people this, is, you know, I think that Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders show evidence of a good deal of viability against Donald Trump. So what people ought to really think seriously about doing is voting for who they believe in. John Nichols, read him at The Nation magazine, thenation.com. John, it's always great to have you on the show. Thanks. Total pleasure, John. Thanks for having me. Now it's time to talk about voting restrictions at work. On Tuesday, North Carolina's new voter ID law took effect for the first time. For comment, we turn to Ari Berman. He's a senior contributing writer for The Nation and author of the indispensable book, Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. Ari Berman, welcome. Hey, John. Good to talk to you again. Well, we used to say Mississippi was the worst place in America, the most racist, the most repressive. That's why Nina Simone sang that song, Mississippi Goddamn. But now it seems like it's time to say that about North Carolina. Uh, (laughs) So please explain the current voter registration laws in North Carolina. Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, North Carolina always prided itself on not being Mississippi and not being Alabama and certainly not being South Carolina uh, when it came to issues of civil rights. Uh, But if you look at what has happened uh, to voting rights, North Carolina has been uh, among the worst offenders in the country uh, because a month after uh, the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act, Republicans in North Carolina passed a really sweeping rewrite of of their election system. Uh, They required strict ID to cast a ballot. They eliminated same-day voter registration. They cut back on early voting. They eliminated pre-registration for 16 and 17-year-olds. They even eliminated Citizens Awareness Month, which the state ran to encourage people to register. Uh, And some of these things, including the voter ID law, were in effect for the first time in the March 15th primary and are in effect for the first presidential cycle uh, this year. Uh, And so uh, what we know in North Carolina is that 218,000 registered voters uh, did not have uh, the ID that's required to cast a ballot. You say strict ID is is required. How strict is the ID requirement? What's the problem there? Your your newer article at thenation.com has some some vivid examples of problems that people have run into getting the new I- required ID. Well, it's one of the strictest ID laws in the country on paper because it, it does not accept, for example, student IDs, uh, public employee IDs. So there are government-issued IDs that are not allowed under the law. Uh, so it's a misnomer to just say that it's a government-issued ID because certain government-issued IDs are not accepted. Uh, but I tell a story in my article about an 85-year-old woman named Ethelene Douglas uh, who was trying to get uh, a photo ID uh, to be able to vote. And it took her uh, two years, four trips to the DMV, two trips to South Carolina, where she was born, uh, and it took her niece uh, $86 in various documents to be able to get the photo ID that her aunt needed to be able to vote because she found herself in a situation that many people find themselves in, which is to get photo ID, you need a birth certificate. But often to get a birth certificate, you need photo ID. So you're caught in this horrible catch-22. So what happened with her is she didn't have a copy of her birth certificate because she was born at home in the segregated South. And so she instead had to get 
her marriage certificate, but that was not accepted when she returned to the DMV. Uh, so it was this horrible process that she went through. This is someone who registered to vote in 1964. So she's been voting for 50 years, and only now, because of this voter ID requirement, did she have to jump through all these hoops and essentially pay an $86 poll tax to be able to cast a ballot. I know there have been some court challenges uh, to this new uh, strict ID requirement, and and in response to those, the state legislature in North Carolina passed a new law that under which people who face what they call a reasonable impediment to obtaining the required ID can still vote in North Carolina. They can cast a provisional ballot. That that sounds like good news. Yeah, so it, it was a really bizarre process because this entire law was going to be challenged in 2013 uh, and the in 2014 I should say and uh, basically uh, the the state legislature just weeks before the court case decided that they were going to dramatically weaken the voter ID law and that in fact you could vote without ID uh, if you stated why you had a reasonable impediment to obtaining one. Uh, however, uh, this has not been well advertised. Uh, many people do not know that this provision exists. Uh, not only that, but these ballots are provisional ballots, so they're not guaranteed to be counted. In 2014, North Carolina rejected half of all provisional ballots. And there are still many voters that I described who, uh, before this law was watered down, had to jump through many, many hoops to get the required documentation. So uh, I don't think this really fixes the problem. It, 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 to some extent, it softens the problem, uh, but the problem is still there. And I understand the the Federal Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit has put a, a hold on some of the provisions of the new laws. So not all of it applies to the primary that was this week. What Same-day uh, registration and out-of-precinct voting were in effect on Tuesday. Have I got that right? Yes, they were in effect for the March 15th primary, which, which was a a very, very big deal uh, because the elimination of same-day registration, the elimination of out-of-precinct voting in 2014 uh, led to many, many people not being able to vote because uh, in North Carolina, people, for example, had gotten used to, uh, after they finish work, they go and vote the place closest to work, and now they can no longer do that. So there's a lot of confusion of which polling place to go to. There was also lots of confusion over eliminating the same-day voter registration because previously people would show up and register and vote at the same time, or they would show up and update their registration, for example. Now they could no longer do that. So a lot of people showed up at, at the polls in 2014, and they either weren't able to register, they weren't able to update their registration, they weren't able to vote. And Democracy North Carolina calculated, uh, they found 2,300 rejected provisional ballots uh, that were not counted in 2014 because of these changes. Uh, and they found that the actual number may, may have been much, much higher than tens of thousands, because obviously you're not going to find everyone who was turned away from the polls who didn't show up in the first place. And so sometimes things like voter ID get all the headlines, but it's these other changes like getting rid of same-day registration, like getting rid of out-of-precinct voting that can cause just as much or even more chaos. Do you think the new restrictions on voter ID really could change the outcome of an election, say, in November? I definitely think that it, it could have a big impact 
in the 2016 election because if you look, the Government Accountability Office did a major study of voter ID laws on the 2012 election. They found that these laws reduced voter turnout by 2 to 3 percent with the highest drop-offs among uh, younger voters, first-time voters, uh, and voters of color, who are the core elements of the Democratic coalition. And if you look at what happened when Barack Obama won North Carolina in 2008, he only won by 14,000 votes, or 0.3%. So if there are close elections, then these restrictions can have a very big impact. Wow. Barack Obama won North Carolina by 0.3%, and the voter ID restrictions in general reduce voting by about 2%. That's that's huge. Uh, there are these court challenges uh, in the Fourth Circuit, the federal courts. What is the status of, of the court challenges? Is there any chance they'll restore voting rights in North Carolina before November? It's really hard to say. Right now, the case is before a judge who was appointed by George W. Bush. He's a quite conservative, uh, so there, there's a good chance that he could uphold the voting restrictions. Then it goes to the Fourth Circuit. Uh, we don't know what they will do. Uh, and then, who knows? Will it go to the Supreme Court? Will there be a Supreme Court justice filling Antonin Scalia's seat? Will the court still be deadlocked four to four? Will they not be able to hear any cases because of that? So the whole landscape of all of these laws is uh, really in flux. And I, I think it's extremely confusing to voters because the law doesn't just change once uh, for the worse. It changes for, for the worst, and then it starts going through the courts. Uh, and so there's so much confusion, and I think that's really uh, a major byproduct. Uh, the laws itself, the, the laws themselves may turn people away, but often the confusion over them can have just as big of an impact. You mentioned the Supreme Court, of course, as you said, it was the Supreme Court that gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013. That vote was five to four. Now one of the five has died and will be will be replaced. Uh, in November, we will elect a new president. The new president will nominate a new Supreme Court justice. I'm, I'm assuming here the Republicans will stick to their guns and refuse to... Uh, uh, confirm any of uh, Obama's nominees before November. So if if the Democrats win the White House in November, if they retake the Senate in November, do you think then the Supreme Court will reverse uh, Shelby County versus Holder, that 2013 decision that gutted the Voting Rights Act? Well, the, the difficult thing about the Voting Rights Act case is the Supreme Court struck down a part of the law. So now that part of the law no longer exists. And so you'd have to bring a challenge that would somehow get the court uh, to be able to reconsider the, that. I mean, I think that a 5-4 court uh, with uh, a Democratic-appointed majority uh, would think very differently about the Voting Rights Act, would think very differently about voting rights, might be much more skeptical of things like the like voter ID laws, for example, that have been upheld uh, by the Roberts Court. But I ultimately think it's going to have to be Congress reauthorizing the Voting Rights Act uh, to make this relevant again, because uh, unlike Citizens United, where the court could take a different interpretation, here the court struck down a key part of the Voting Rights Act, and so really it's only Congress uh, that can resurrect it. Ari Berman, his book is Give Us the Ballot. Thank you, Ari. Thank you, John. Good to talk to you. 
Now it's time to ask the question, whatever happened to the party of the people? For that, we turn to Tom Frank. Of course, he's the author of the classic What's the Matter with Kansas and also the books Pity the Billionaire and The Wrecking Crew. He's a former columnist for The Wall Street Journal and Harper's. Now he writes regularly for Salon. And he has a new book out now. It's called Listen Liberal or Whatever Happened to the Party of the People. Tom Frank, welcome. How are you, John? I'm good. How are you? Dandy. Well, I want to start today by quoting Sarah Palin. You probably remember the question she asked a few years ago to people like us who voted for Obama. She said, how's that hopey, changey thing working out for you? You know, um, <laughs> I kind of overdosed on hope myself. Yeah. Uh, and the, ch- the change, as I was, as I was uh, researching uh, Listen Liberal, I, 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 I remembered uh, that Obama's website was called change.gov. Mm. You remember this? Change.gov. And, uh, yeah, you know, the change never really got here. Uh, I don't think that's what Sarah Palin meant by it. I think she was like, oh, that change was so radical, you know. But uh, the change never really came, and and the hope, frankly, uh, stinks now. But, we're, you know, we're going to get another dose of it here real soon. we all got to get our hopes up again. You know, it's just the way it works. There's a hope cycle in American life. Here's another quote from Rahm Emanuel, who served as Obama's chief of staff at the beginning. Rahm said, I'm sure you remember this one, quote, never let a serious crisis go to waste. Yeah, that, that's, like, that's actually one of Rahm's better statements. Rahm is kind of, a, kind of an embarrassment, I think, but, but he was right about that. And, you know, what's, what's interesting is you remember how, much, how he was vilified for saying that. Everybody thought he was, uh, you know, that they, were, that they were creating crisis. You remember all the conspiracy theories that sort of swirled around that that statement. The funny thing is, they did let the crisis go to waste. You know, they, they, we elected Barack Obama in this towering wave of of hope and uh, sort of faith that he would do something about the sort of awful economic predicament we were in, and he basically continued the Bush administration policies unchanged for several years. I mean, after a couple of years, they, they managed to, you know, they, they, they passed this thing, Dodd-Frank, and it finally started to come into effect, but not really, and it hasn't really done anything. And, you know, the change never came. Now we have this sort of the, 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 the really uh, funny little coda to that. The economy has recovered on paper, and a lot of people are doing much better than they've ever done before. But average, uh, like the average middle-class citizens, workers in, in America, are, have never recovered. There is no recovery for them. It's, it, you know, there's something changed in the last recession where, that has permanently, you know, permanently messed with their ability to, to earn a living. You know, the, like the, the labor share of gross domestic product is now the lowest it has ever been since World War II, and it is, it's not bouncing back. It's not bouncing. Something, something fundamental, something uh, basic to the economy, uh, something structural has changed, and we understand that in a sort of uh, a dim way, but we don't. We we can't really put our finger at. Anyhow, our politicians are done, right? They're they're brushing off their hands. They they did it, right? They they delivered. Uh, uh, the stock market has ba- has rebounded. You know, the economy is doing well on paper, and they're like, what's what's the matter with you people? Why are you still so upset about things? Here's a quote from Obama on this very topic. 
inequality is the defining challenge of our time, close quote. Shouldn't, shouldn't we be proud that our president made such a, a forceful and compelling and, and true statement? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I am kind of proud of him for saying it, but you, you think about it, he only said that after uh, Occupy Wall Street really put the issue in his face, you know, and in the entire nation's face, and he couldn't really avoid it. And, and then also to, to, to use that, I'll tell you, I don't like the word inequality. It makes it sound like it's a technical problem that the economists uh, back in D.C. Can, can solve with, you know, a twist of the knobs, right? They just have to move the lever very slightly over one way, and, and, that, and that'll solve the problem. And it's, it's not that. It's inequality is something that, is, that, we, that we experience and feel and taste in our everyday lives, you know, it is, it's everywhere you look now. It's in like our every interaction with other people. Actually, you have a great, a, a great quote about inequality in, in your book. Could you read that for us? Yeah, inequality, you know, I, like I said, I don't like the word, but it, it's, you know, it's not even an issue as that term is generally used. Inequality is the eternal conflict of management and labor, owner and worker, rich and poor, only with one side pinned to the ground and the other leisurely pounding away at its adversary's face. Ooh. But, but isn't this all the fault of the Republicans? Didn't Obama face the, the party uh, of no? No, he definitely did. And the Republicans have a lot to answer for it. Look, the point that I make in Listen Liberal is that the blame is, the problem is much bigger than that. You can't just say, oh, you know, the war of Republicans and Democrats, it's so meaningful. If we can just go back into battle with the Republicans and defeat them this time, you know, and they're so, you know, they're such awful people. Uh, and if we can defeat them this time, then, then everything will be hunky-dory and, we'll, and finally we'll be able to do all the good stuff and we'll be able to solve all the problems. That, that's just not the case. The Democrats, look, let me put it this way. The Democrats are almost as committed to inequality as the Republicans are. In some ways, they're more committed to it. Strong words. Like, how, how, how the hell can that be? How the hell can that be? <laughs> Look, there's two. Let me put it this way. There's two hierarchies of power in America. One is the hierarchy of money, the 1%, the Koch brothers. You know, we love to make fun of those guys. But there's another hierarchy, and it's the hierarchy of status. Uh, and a, you know, of merit, of, of professional achievement. And this is the hierarchy that the Democrats are, oh, so very tuned into. And this is the, this is the hierarchy that they represent. And what I'm talking about here is the upper 10% of the income distribution, not the top 1%. That's, those people generally go for the Republicans. But the, the top 10%, uh, who tend to be Democrats. Now, this is the weird thing. That, those, that, that is the mass constituency for inequality. You think about it. There's got to be somebody. There's got to be some people who think inequality is pretty good. You know, some people who, are, who, who have done well in the last 20 years, while you know, the, the other 90% of the, uh, of the population got nothing. And that's who it is. It's the top 10%. It's the, it's the successful professionals. It's the managerial class. And they tend to be Democrats. You've said the Democrats are almost as culpable as the Republicans for inequality. That, of course, leads us to the inevitable subject of Donald Trump. We're all, we're all <laughs> horrified. We're all horrified by Donald Trump, by, by the violence he fosters at his rallies. But you did something radical. You listened to what he was saying at those rallies. 
what did you yeah, hear? Yeah, I did. Uh, that's and it, it doesn't seem all that radical, but I noticed that all the coverage of him was just about the violence and the, uh, you know, his insults and his, uh, uh, you know, his bigotry. You know, the ethnic slurs, and there's a lot of this, right? But uh, if you, I sat and watched uh, several of his speeches in their entirety, and he it, he actually does something that's that that's kind of surprising. Uh, he starts talking about trade, and it is he is obsessed with the trade issue. Uh, he talks about by far the, uh, the 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 most you know the subject that he spends the most time on at his rallies, and it, he I mean he really seems to be uh, taking the side of the American worker against their bosses who've outsourced everything to Mexico. He, I mean, if you watch these rallies, there's a, the, one of his big applause lines is where he does this kind of, uh, of it's kind of a comedy routine, sort of in an ugly way, where he imagines calling up the CEO of a company that just uh, moved its factory to Mexico, you know, and they really did. It's a uh, carrier air conditioning or something like that. And he, he imagines calling up the CEO and threatening the guy with, uh, with these, you know, enormous tariffs uh, if they want to bring their, sell their air conditioner units back in the United States, which is, of course, what their, what their plan is. And, uh, the audience just roars as he imagines how the CEO would, would immediately capitulate, you know, and, and he would, he would get that factory back in America. And, you know, <laughs> I don't know if that's how you would do it. I don't know if that would work or anything, but this guy has re- is really touching, uh, uh, he's really touching a nerve and there's, look, it is a legitimate issue. The trade question is a legitimate issue. But, but, uh, but do you, do you, do you think the people at Trump rallies really believe that's the way to get jobs back in America is have Donald Trump call up the CEOs? <laughs> It, well, it's, it certainly sounds better than, like, you know, having a 10-point technocratic plan, you know, from Hillary Clinton or something like that. Uh, it, it, it's, it's just so uh, viscerally uh, satisfying, you know. I, I, don't, I don't know if that would work. I don't – I suspect it probably wouldn't, you know, that, that – that, that's that's not how you uh, how you handle international trade. <laughs> but well, then, you know it's 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 a it's an enormous crowd pleaser, and it's funny that Democrats. I could see a Democrat doing something like that uh, in uh, a long time ago, but uh, but they, they you know never anymore. But aren't aren't you surprised that the guy who became the hero of the working class? is a New York real estate billionaire with a reality TV show that features him saying, you're fired? <laughs> yeah, it's the strangest thing in the world. Uh, believe me, it's like, it's uh, uh, years ago, you might remember, John, I wrote, I wrote a book about this sort of delusional uh, right-wing uh, uh, culture and the way that it appeals to working-class sentiments. And I have to say, Donald Trump is the strangest variation on that theme that I have ever seen. It, it, it amazes me every time, I, every time I, I see it. You know, this is a guy that loves to have everything in marble with gold trim. You know, <laughs> he owns a fancy country club in Florida. It's, it's crazy. Well, maybe he's the, he's the working class hero. Maybe that's why Trump says, "I love the poorly educated." Okay, well, now that's that's uh, now okay. Now you've gone now you've gone too far, John. <laughs> you know what you know what he's referring to there. He's just referring to this uh, this uh, demographic category that the uh, 
that the pollsters use, and it's they often use lack of a college uh, a college education or a college degree to stand in for uh, working class people. But that doesn't mean uh, they're stupid. You know that. Tom Frank, <laughs> his new book is "Listen Liberal or Whatever Happened to the Party of the People." Thank you, Tom. You got it, man. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded and edited by Jerry Gorin at Emerson College, Los Angeles. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. And subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, give us a rating at iTunes. Five stars is good. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.